Chapter 35 of A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks by Louis Albert Banks. Chapter 35 The Duty and Privilege of Forgiving Those Who Injure Us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 32. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Perhaps the superiority of Christianity to all worldly philosophy shines out clearer at this point of forgiveness of injuries than almost anywhere else. Cultivated worldly people have their silver rule which enjoins that we shall treat other people as they treat us, but it is only Christianity which has the golden rule of love which requires us to do unto others as we would like to have them do unto us. Even the religion of Moses held to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but Christ soars far higher into the realm of love and forgiveness. Christianity is high-water mark in human living. It is an extra height of goodness. Christ says that unless our righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we have no right to be called after his name. We must climb up out of the foggy atmosphere of holding grudges and wreaking vengeance, to bask in the sunshine which is reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. But John told the truth when he said that the commandments of Christ are never grievous. This duty of forgiving those who injure us is not only not a heavy burden added to the weary load of life, but it is the only sure way to happiness. It is the sure indication of a noble soul to overlook slights and refuse to revenge injuries. Sir Thomas Brown says, quote, Have any wronged thee? Be bravely revenged. Slight it, and the work's begun. Forgive it, tis finished. He is below himself that is not above an injury. End quote. In the course of Gladstone's great speech on the second reading of the historic Home Rule Bill, he went out of his way to pay a graceful compliment to the son of Joseph Chamberlain, who had delivered his maiden speech in that debate. Quote, the speech was one, said Gladstone, that must have been dear and refreshing to a father's heart. End quote. The effect of these generous words on Chamberlain, who had of late lost no opportunity to affront the great premier, was very marked. He covered his face with his hands while the tears ran down his cheeks for many minutes. Many a silly enemy has been turned aside by the refusal of the one attacked to retaliate. While Spurgeon was still a boy preacher, he was warned about a certain virago and told that she intended to give him a tongue lashing. All right, he replied, but that's a game that two can play. 
not long after, as he passed her gate one morning, she assailed him with a flood of Billingsgate. He smiled and said, Yes, thank you, I am quite well, I hope you are the same. Then came another burst of vituperation, pitched in a yet higher key, to which he replied, still smiling, Yes, it does look rather as if it might rain. I think I had better be getting on. Bless the man, she exclaimed. He is as deaf as a post. What's the use of storming at him? And so her railings ceased, and were never again attempted. There is no grace which more adorns human nature than the grace of forgiveness and mercy. When the young Queen of the Netherlands recently visited Paris, the ladies of Paris were delighted with a necklace that she always wore, whatever might be her costume. This ornament consisted of a gold chain with a very original clasp, it being composed of a snake whose body partly encircled the neck and chain. The head of the snake was a single huge diamond of wonderful fire and beauty, while the body of the reptile was composed of smaller diamonds, rubies, and other precious stones. But I know of a necklace more beautiful and enduring than that, and one which every one of us may wear. It is the one spoken of by Solomon when he says, quote, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck. End quote. The grace of forgiveness is not only ornamental, but it is a grace which can flourish only where there is warm personal fellowship with the heart of Christ. Did you ever see a watercress pond in the midst of winter? It is a very attractive sight. With the thermometer far below the freezing point and with deep snow covering the ground and the branches of the trees, the patch of watercress stands out in striking contrast, a spot of vivid green, like a carpet on the surface of the pond. That the plants are able to grow and flourish under such apparently impossible conditions of weather is due entirely to the warm springs which feed the pond. The water welling forth from the warm heart of the earth saves them from freezing. So, the only way a generous, forgiving spirit can be always maintained in the midst of the freezing selfishness of the world is to have the fountain which Christ has promised, the fountain of living water, evermore springing up in the heart. A forgiving spirit absorbs and takes out of our social fellowships many of the poisonous hurts that would otherwise cause sorrow. It is like a tamarack tree, which, growing in a swamp, will absorb all the microbes of malaria and save the whole community from ague and fever. And so healthy is the tree itself that in purifying the water and atmosphere, it seems to grow all the more vigorously and gracefully. No one ever lost in graciousness of spirit or beauty of soul or peace of heart by forgiving an injury. God has so made the world that every such generous, Christ-like deed shall have its influence not only now and here, but evermore and everywhere. In Gray's famous elegy, 
there is a line which bemoans the fate of flowers that waste their sweetness on the desert air but modern scientists assure us that the poet was wrong in his conception and that no flower ever yet thus wasted its sweetness they explain to us that all the flowers in the world whether they be the laurels and the rhododendrons of the lofty mountains and the deep forests or the palms of india and africa or the gorgeous century plants of the american desert or the roses of the valleys are perpetually enriching the atmosphere and making the earth a healthier and sweeter place in which to live many of these great gardens of god grow and flourish hundreds of miles from any human habitation but god causes the winds to catch up their fragrance and the air is sweeter in cleveland because there are flowers growing in south america and china the god who knows how to make the flower perfume cross the oceans will not be at a loss to find a way to make your deed of forgiving love and mercy help the world and that not only now but centuries after you are rejoicing in heaven if we have such a spirit it will be doing good under all the circumstances of life which may come to us frederick weatherby sings a song of an aeolian harp which is a true song also of the christian heart Quote, i set my wind harp in the wind and the wind came out of the south soft soft it blew with gentle coo like words from a maiden's mouth then like the stir of angels wings it gently touched the trembling strings and oh my harp gave back to me a wondrous heavenly melody i set my wind harp in the wind and a storm from the north blew loud from the icy north it turned forth and dark grew sea and cloud it whistled down the mountain's height it smote the quivering cords with might but still my harp gave back to me its tender heavenly melody ah me that such a heart were mine responsive tuned and true when all was glad when all was shine or when storms of sorrows blew that so mid all the fret and strife the jarring undertones of life my life might rise to god and be one long harmonious symphony End, quote. End of chapter thirty five